Let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord God, we thank you for giving us another day to live, to enjoy your creation, uh, for your honor, for your glory. Would you please use this time tonight to continue to sharpen our minds as we think about what we are, Lord, and, and what we are here to do and what the problem is and the solution that you've provided for that problem. Equip us to be useful for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So on this paper here, um, it's just like the other ones where um, the original 1925 is at the top. Then you've got the 1963. Anything in red is what the previous one had that that edition eliminated. And then anything in green is what that year added to it. Okay, So then you see the 2000. Uh, the red is what the previous one took, uh, took away from the previous one. Green is what they added to it. And then you'll notice some yellow. This is new. I didn't. I couldn't think of another way to do this other than just highlight it yellow. But um, what they did was they took that phrase in the 1925 and they reversed them in the in the uh, two editions after that. So that's why it's highlighted yellow is to just draw your attention to it. Same words. They didn't eliminate any words or add it to it. But um, that's the best way I could think of to do that there. Um, and then you see the image of God. I highlighted it yellow because in the first one, they just quote the scripture references out of Genesis. And the next two, instead of quoting the references, they just added those phrases in his image, male and female. So that's kind of what that is. Hopefully that's helpful for you as you um, study this. Um, you can go ahead and pull out your note paper here. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get started kind of breaking this down uh, one little bit at a time. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it to Genesis uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at Genesis um, 1 and 2 a little bit in this first section. So Genesis chapter 1. And I'm not going to read through the entire creation account here. But I will call you to kind of look through this because there are some phrases here that repeat that are going to be important for us here in just a moment. As you look through the account, it says um, what day it is, what God does. And then there's this phrase that repeats that says it was good. You see it here in uh, verse 10. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. You see down here in verse 12, God saw that it was good. This repeats over and over. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Uh, verse 21, God saw that it was good. So you see this over and over and over. This is kind of the idea that we see reflected here in the beginning of uh, Article 3. It's titled Man. In uh, the 1925, the article was titled The Fall of Man. And then um, the two times after that where they adjusted it, they just call the article man. So you see, man is the special creation of God made in his own image. He created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. So we see this idea. God called it good, 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 good. Well, then we get to uh, Genesis. We're going to go forward and then we're going to come back. So I want you to go to Genesis chapter two and look at verse 18. Genesis 2.18. So Genesis 2, we studied this on a Sunday morning some time ago. God is kind of giving us a closer look at creation. We had the airplane, sky-high view. Now we're in the trees here. 
And in verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, sin has not entered into creation yet. So the reason that it is not good is because God is not yet done creating man. There's something else that God must do. And we know with the story that that is creating Eve for Adam. It is not good that he should be alone. So now I want you to go backwards, back to chapter 1 in verse 31. So this is the end of creation, very last verse of the chapter. After this happens, God sees everything that he has made. And behold, now that we have man and woman, now it is very good. Okay, so the creation of man, male and female, is the crowning work of his creation. One sinful way that we can treat this is saying, well, look how special we are, almost like Satan does, where he puffs himself up. So we ought not to do that, but we ought to recognize that there is something unique about us. God has made us in his own image, and he has not done that for the rest of his creation. And so we are the crowning work of his creation. Um, 1925 and 1963, they said uh, man was created by the special act of God. And then the 2000 changes that man is the special creation of God. Again, I think that the first two were fine. I think that they're right and accurate. But the idea that it um, that they want to convey is that there is something special about man. Man is made in God's image. And so we need to reflect that in, in our kind of statement of belief here. Um, and then I mentioned earlier that the 1925 quoted those two verses. The other ones don't. Um, and then in 2000, we have the addition of uh, an entire section here regarding male and female and the gift of gender. So the 2000 added, he created them male and female. And they added this phrase here, the gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. Does anybody have any idea in the year 2000 what might have been going on to lead them to say, we need to clarify male and female and the goodness of gender? It's a thinker, right? I don't, think we need to, I don't think we need to think hard about this. Even in our culture today, the kind of gender wars are just raging full force. And so we need this clarification. What is it to be made in the image of God? It is to be made male and female. It is not good for man to be alone. So we can celebrate the difference of gender in man and woman. And what we see in our culture today is kind of the opposite, where Christianity suggests we need to celebrate the differences between men and women. It's a beautiful thing. But the culture is trying to convince everyone, well, really to be equal, we all need equal opportunity, equal abilities, or else we're not really equal. Christians hold you can be different and still equal in value. And the culture says no. So what does the culture do? It has to blur the distinction between man and woman. It has to do that. There's just no way getting around. There are some things that women can do that men cannot do. And there are some things men can do that women cannot do. You can't get around that. If you want total equality across the board, what you're going to have to do is blur that distinction. So it shouldn't surprise us when the culture does something like this. It should be shocking to our moral compass 
that the culture would do that. But logically, it should not shock us that the culture does this because they are rejecting this God-given design. They don't believe that gender is a gift to be celebrated, but an obstacle to be overcome. So I like that they've clarified and added that here in, in the Baptist faith and message. So now let's move on to this next one. Uh, in the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence. So the, I'm going to talk about the changes first here, and then we'll kind of look at some of this. The 1925 did not have all this. All they had was, through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original holiness and righteousness instead of innocence. So the 1963 changed that from holiness and righteousness to innocence. And I think the verb change, it's hard to say for sure because I wasn't there. I think it was probably made to emphasize the legal aspect of our guilt before God. If you remember in talking about, I think, the uh, God the Son... We talked about the importance of what Jesus did and why it accomplished, why it secures our salvation. It is a legal transaction. We have a sin debt that needs to be paid for. It's not that on Jesus' death on the cross that we belong to Satan and there was a certain price that Jesus had to pay to Satan for us to be redeemed. It's none of that. It is a legal transaction. We are guilty before God and in debt. And I think this verbiage change was probably made to emphasize that man is not innocent anymore. We were innocent. Now we have sinned and we are not innocent. You also see the same language at the beginning of this section. They added, um, in the beginning, man was innocent of sin. So again, I think that that's what they're trying to drive home and why they made that change there. We also see emphasized here man's freedom of choice. It was by this choice that man sinned. What this means is that man was not forced against his will to do something he did not want to do. It was completely his desire to do that. And that is why he is guilty. Um, the original 1925 left this idea out, and they only referred to the temptation of Satan. And I think that this is good that we have it added because it might communicate that it's Satan's fault that we sinned, not our own. So we need that clarification that it's not just that Satan made a sin and then if we hadn't, oh, maybe we could have. No, we decided to do that on our own. And sin within us wants to constantly cast blame elsewhere, but it lies here. Okay. So I hope you see how all these little ideas are related. It's all kind of centered around this idea of guilt. We are guilty. We can't be guilty if we don't willfully act. So we have willfully decided to sin and we're no longer innocent. So then there's this phrase, brought sin into the human race. And for this, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Uh, we're going to look at verses 12 and 19, but really this whole chapter and really the whole first half of the book of Romans, I mean, it's just uh, excellent for trying to think about these things. But um, specifically uh, chapter 5 and uh, the Baptist faith and message um, in their scripture references, I think all three years that they did this, 25, 63, and 2000, included some of these verses out of Romans chapter 5. So I want to look at um, verse 12 and verse 19. Again, really the whole chapter is good, but verses 12 and 19. So here's what verse 12 says. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, Paul is making a bigger argument here, but the truth that we're trying to glean from this is that sin came into the world through one man. And then death came into the world implicitly through sin. So now death has spread to all men because all sin. Okay? That's the idea here behind brought sin into the human race. Sin came into the world through Adam, and then we are made sinners because of Adam's disobedience. Now, lest you think, well, this isn't fair. You willfully choose to sin all the time. So we can't look at this as some sort of, oh, yeah, but why should I be punished? Okay, well, right now, don't sin. We can't. We need Christ. So no matter what, we can't escape our guilt here. But I want to make two quick points before we kind of move on past this. The first is we do not live in a world that is dominated in this battle between good and evil. There's this idea that good and evil are kind of equal in opposing forces and that all of existence is just an eternal struggle between good and evil to see who's going to win out. I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures of it's like Jesus and the devil arm wrestling. There's like these little images of people that have made these things. And I think that's the idea of a lot of people regarding good and evil just in general. It's kind of like there's this eternal evil force, eternal good force, and that's God and this is Satan. And they're just caught in this everlasting arm wrestling match to see who's going to win out. That is not the Christian teaching of good and evil. God is the ultimate eternal source of good. And sin is not. Neither is Satan. Satan was a created being, and sin did not exist at any point prior to Adam's sin and the angels in heaven. Before that, there is no sin. Sin cannot come on the scene until God gives a moral law to be broken. So at this point, I want to define sin for you. Sin is failure to conform to the moral law of God. Failure to conform to the moral law of God. Sin is lawlessness, is what the scriptures teach. So before there is a moral law, there cannot be a failure to conform to it. So there was a point in the past when sin did not exist, and there will also be a point in the future when sin does not exist. That is the day that we are looking forward to as Christians. We've been saved from our sin. We look forward to that day when we're with God forever in heaven, and sin is no longer a reality. <clears throat> so most worldviews kind of view good and evil this way, but the Christian worldview does not. Evil is temporary, not eternal. It was brought into sin, into the human race. Sin was brought into the world uh, in the human race by Adam. I have a, a little catechism that I wrote for children who are asking questions about the faith. And one of the questions in there I put was, what is sin? And the way that I defined it was any thought, word, or deed that fails to honor and enjoy God. I think um, a lot of other popular definitions include the word nature. We're separating that for a reason. You'll see why in just a moment. But any time that you think or speak or do something that is not in alignment with God's character or his instructions. That's what sin is. So sin is rebellion against God. Again, this idea of innocent versus guilty is going to come up over and over again. 
So now the next uh, the next section here, uh, whereby his pro- his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. So the 1963 and the 2000 here, this is where that yellow phrase is that they swapped. It's kind of two halves of a phrase. 1925 had under condemnation first, and then as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors. The 63 and the 2000 flip that and have, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors, violator of the law, and are under condemnation. I think that it's just to make it clear that why are we condemned? Because we transgress the law. Just to make that understanding clear, I believe is probably the decision behind that. Um, You also see this phrase here that we inherit a sinful nature and an environment inclined toward sin. So here you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Ephesians 2, 3. And once we're done looking at this verse, don't close your Bible because we'll come back to Ephesians here in just a moment. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. This phrase here, inherit a sinful nature and an environment inclined towards sin, explains why it is that we sin. I mentioned earlier, if you think you can avoid sin, try it. Good luck. We all have a sinful nature, and that's what they're explaining here. We have a nature that is desirous of sin. And the phrase for this, surprise, surprise, is called the sinful nature. We all have this. The Bible refers to it as the flesh many times. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we'll kind of see this. It says, among whom, uh, I'm going to back up to verse 1 to give it some context here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, this is the former life before Christ, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And now here's our verse. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the phrases here that it uses to describe this nature are passions of our flesh, desires of the body and the mind, and we are by nature children of wrath. Our sin nature is not necessary to being a human. Okay, It's possible to be a human without a sinful nature. The problem is that none of us will ever experience that because we inherit our sinful nature from our parents who inherited it from their parents, who inherited it from their parents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. So there is a perpetual passing down of the sin nature. The only anomaly in this sequence is the Son of God, who was born a man. He had the nature of man. He was 100% God, 100% man. Well, then he must have had a sinful nature. He does not because it's not required for humanity. He does not have a sinful nature like we do. And so we see the same thing here. It is not required for us to have a sinful nature, but we do because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Now we have a nature to sin. It gives us these passions and desires in the body and in the mind to want to sin. 
Um, if you want to, you can also write down Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. This is not in the references on the Baptist faith and message. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. And it describes this kind of struggle as a Christian between the spirit and the flesh. So my sinful nature wants to do one thing, but the Holy Spirit within me wants something else. And they are constantly at war with one another. That's Galatians 5, 16 through 26. So that's the phrase there about inheriting a sinful nature. So now our problem is a little more dire in that it's not just that we commit sin. It's that we have a sinful nature that left unchecked would sin perpetually forever. It is a dire, dire situation. Next phrase here. Only the grace of God can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. So here's where we're going to look back at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to keep going a little bit further down here in the first 10 verses. In verse 4, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Skim down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So apart from God's grace in Christ Jesus, we are unable to fulfill God's purposes for us. We cannot do it. Apart from Christ, we are unable God's grace enables us to fulfill the creative purpose of God. Write down this verse on the side also for future reference. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Philippians 2, 13. It says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the desire to live for God and the ability to carry it out are both from God. It is all grace. Why? So that we can't boast about it. Sometimes we're guilty of this. Like, well, we'll go out and do something for someone, or we'll do something in the church, or we'll give money for something, or we'll be nice to someone, or someone else might fall short, and we think, why couldn't they do better? Why can't they do like I do? We have to remember that even our good works are just a gift from God. We can't claim credit for that. We can't say, well, look how generous I am. I know we're tempted to think that, but it's all a gift from God. This eliminates boasting, and that's Paul's point here. This next phrase, uh, the last that we're going to look at, um, the sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image, and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. So here they're tying the sacredness, the value of life to two things. Number one, God made you in his image. Number two, Christ died for you. So those are two ways that you can know that life is valuable and sacred. The 2000 changed man to a person of every race, where you see person of every race, it was just man prior. 
and they added full in front of the word dignity. Um, I think those are great changes. I think that the point still remains, but I think that the changes are fine there. Um, it's just an attempt really to broaden our understanding of who has dignity and how much dignity they have. All have dignity, regardless of race, regardless of social class, regardless of what they do, uh, their moral state. Everyone has full dignity all the time. Why? Because everyone is made in the image of God, from the greatest of us to the least of us. It's easy to kind of use this moral extreme and to say, okay, well, you know, at least I'm not that bad. Well, look at Hitler. You know, he was a terrible person. Hitler was just as much made in the image of God as you and I. It is a shame for anyone made in the image of God to have to pay for their sin when Christ offers free forgiveness. It is a shame. And part of our condemnation, I'm going to speak for myself, is that I will look at someone and think, okay, yeah, but that person, I mean, that person is just evil. Not even recognizing I am the same. The only difference is I've received grace and they have not yet. So rather than just craving for justice now, we should be striving, and we'll get to that in our application, we should be striving to get the gospel to people who need it. Even those who reject it over and over and over again. I've got family members that have rejected the gospel for years. I am not going to give up sharing the gospel with these people. Why? Because I don't want them to pay for their sin. I don't. That is how we ought to view all people, regardless of race, uh, ethnicity, social class, moral state, etc. No lives are any more or less valuable than any other. They are all valuable because they're all made in the image of God. Now, let me go ahead and draw this connection here. When you eliminate this idea of people being made in the image of God from your worldview, you eliminate almost any foundation for the value of life. If God has not made us, we are no more valuable than that pavement outside. If God has not made us, we lose our value. Now, I'm not saying that people can't try to give life value. I'm saying it will never make sense logically. Look at the top atheists in our country and even around the world, and they will tell you they have said some crazy things about this. Well, I mean, we're just specs. In this ever-expanding universe, it's all going to die a cold death anyway. So nothing really matters. That's the logical conclusion. So we shouldn't be surprised, again, in our culture, when people are devaluing life and we're thinking, why would you do that? They don't have room in their worldview for understanding why people are valuable. Because they have rejected the foundation. We have to hang on to this. This is why there's an organization, Answers in Genesis, and one of their things is, and you, know, you may disagree or disagree with some of the things that they have out there, but their point is, if we throw Genesis out, we have lost almost the entire foundation of what we believe as Christians. That's where most of this is built, is out of the very beginning in Genesis. So it's just vital that we affirm these things. Let me give you some application here, and then we'll have... Uh, a little bit time of time for questions, and then we can take a little break before business meeting. I've got five points of application here for us. Uh, five healthy responses to a biblical understanding of man. Five healthy responses 
to a biblical understanding of man. Here's number one. Be gracious towards the sin of others. Be gracious towards the sin of others. Now, let me clarify here. This does not mean that we just tolerate all sin. Okay? This does not mean that we never address sin. It means that we don't think of others as worse sinners than we are. Why? Because more than being what we do, sin is just what we are by nature. If we do not grasp that, we will not be able to be gracious towards the sin of others because we'll think, why don't you just stop? They can't stop, just like we can't stop. If it wasn't for Christ's forgiveness of all of our sin, if we could lose our salvation, I guarantee you, you'd have lost it a hundred times over already. So would I. We all sin. So this understanding of man should give us graciousness towards the sin of others. When we can't be gracious towards the sin of others, it's usually a sign of self-righteousness. We have too high a view of our own ability to follow God's law. And we begin to take some of the credit upon ourselves for how we're living. We basically become just like the Pharisees. We really just forget how sinful our own sin nature truly is. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that sinful nature is gone. It is still, uh, 1 Peter talks about Satan being a roaring lion just prowling around. And I like to view the sinful nature as the same. It is just waiting for that moment of weakness to pull you under and to have you. So be gracious towards the sin of others. Second response. Look for the image of God in every person. Look for the image of God in every person. This is a powerful motivator to love others, including our enemies. Even your enemies are individuals made in the image of God. You may find yourself wanting to hate them, but God made that individual And Jesus died so that that individual might be forgiven of sin. So we better not be the ones saying, nope, you're not worthy of it. We better not be the ones saying that. This will help you, looking for the image of God in every person, will help you to do good to others more often. And it will also help to motivate you in your evangelism and in sharing the gospel with other people. Someone made in the image of God would suffer for eternity in hell due to their guilt, and you have the antidote. We just got to share it. We got to give it out. Number three, affirm God's good design of mankind. Affirm God's good design of mankind. This is especially important for those of us who are parents or grandparents, we have children or grandchildren, as often as you can, point out to them that God has designed men and women well. As often as you can, point to something and say, look, isn't it so great that God designed it that way? Look, isn't it so great that God designed it to where you have a mommy and a daddy here? Isn't that good? We need to affirm and remind ourselves that the design is good. 
Because our children are going to grow up and be told by the world it's not good. It needs to be fixed. It does not need to be fixed. God's design was perfect. And we need to affirm that. Number four, treat all life as sacred. Treat all life as sacred. Now, this obviously applies to the abortion debate. We use the word sacred life all the time with that. But I want to go a little bit further. When something bad happens to that person who in your mind is just plain evil, and I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for you. My gut reaction is, okay, that guy deserved it. He deserved it. Or we watch the movie where the bad guy gets destroyed or something like we watch a lot of superhero movies at our house, obviously. So we see that and we're like, okay, that guy was a jerk. He deserved that. Right? That, that's kind of our gut reaction. And the question is, as I was writing this, that I'm asking myself, okay, he deserves it. Don't you deserve it too? And, and I do. You're right. I, I deserve it too. I deserve it and I'm not getting it. But then I rejoice that other people get it. They got what they deserved. I didn't get what I deserve. I deserve help. God gave me grace. This will help you value all life, understanding that it is built in our DNA and that God is the only one who can change the heart. Rather than wanting everyone to pay for their crimes, we of all people ought to understand the desire to want people to be forgiven. I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told about the unforgiving servant. He had his debt forgiven, and then he goes back and finds the guy that owes him money and wrings his neck, and I'll throw your family in jail unless you pay me. And he has it done, and word gets back to the king, and the king said, I forgave you all that debt, and, then you, and, and look what you're doing here. You will go and pay every last penny. It's a sobering reminder for us. We will never be able to think this way if we don't view all life as sacred. Here's last one here, number five. Share the gospel with others. Share the gospel with others. This next point of application here, I think, is especially relevant for us in the Bible Belt. Teaching moral conduct does nothing to fix our problem. You cannot teach someone to outlive the sinful nature. You can't do it. It's not just – our problem is not just that we do wrong. It's that our natures are corrupt. So all we do by teaching someone to do the right thing is modify behavior. But that does not change the heart. Only the gospel changes the heart. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach people how to be moral. I'm not saying that. What I'm suggesting is that we need to move past – Oh, well, so-and-so, if they would just get back in church, everything would be okay. Well, if they would just get back to reading their Bible, everything would be okay. So-and-so doesn't need to get back in church and start reading their Bible. They need to be saved by Jesus and be transformed. And we have to start calling it what it is. We have to start calling it what it is. Now, maybe you're wrong. Maybe that person is saved. But do you really think you're going to do them a service by assuming they're saved when they probably are not and just hoping that they turn around one day? 
We have to be ready and willing to have these hard conversations with people. Why? Because we love them. If they don't look like a fish or swim like a fish or breathe like a fish, we need to stop thinking and treating them like a fish and holding them under the water and hoping that they'll thrive. All we're going to do is drown them under the weight of the law that they have to uphold with their life, and they can't do it. Sinful nature will not let them do it. They probably need the gospel, not just do this so that you can look more like Jesus. So these are five hopefully challenging. As I go through all five of these, they're challenging for me. Five healthy responses to a biblical understanding of man. A good reminder looking at these five that we aren't perfect. But praise be to God that he has given us grace in Jesus Christ. And he enables us to be able to do these things. So let's do them well. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll have time for a Q&A. And then um, we'll have a little break, use the bathroom and everything before a business meeting. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll look at questions. Lord God, we thank you for giving us uh, the Baptist faith and message, obviously, first of all, just to be able to think deeply about the entirety of your scriptures and what they teach in a relatively short and succinct way, Lord, is just so helpful. We thank you that you've made clear in your word our dire condition before you, that, that we have not just made a mistake, but that we are by nature rebels against you your enemies, committing divine treason every day because that is our desire. We thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ to bear our sin in his body on the tree, that we might be forgiven and freed from our bondage to sin, that we might receive the Holy Spirit who wages war against our sinful nature, teaching us to say no to the things of our former way of life and to say yes to your moral law. Lord, would you teach us grace towards others who have not experienced your grace, that we might not boast and be proud and arrogant in our own lives in thinking, well, why can't they just do what I do? Lord, please protect us from such a destructive thought. For everything that we have is from you. Give us grace for others. Give us a deep value for the sacredness of life. That we might see the image of God in each and every person. That we might be motivated to do good to them and to serve them. And ultimately to give the gospel to them so that they in turn can be freed from their guilty state. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord and Savior. Amen.